Well, according to the Greek historian Herodotus, the ancient city of Babylon surpassed in splendor any city in the known world. There was really no city like it, they say. It was built by Nebuchadnezzar in uh, the 6th century B.C., and the city itself was surrounded by 56 miles of wall. The wall was some 350 miles high, and it it was wide enough at the top that four-horse chariots could race around it, an imposing structure for an imposing city. And around the walls themselves was a, a moat that was filled by the Euphrates River that flowed through the flowed under the, the, the main wall and through the city itself. And on the inside of the city, Babylon was, was the center really for the world of, of scholarship and science and sensuality. Its treasuries were filled with gold and jewels that it had looted from cities across the world. Its population was served by slaves who had been kidnapped during their conquests. And when people looked at the city of Babylon, they thought that it was impenetrable, that it was indestructible. Until October of the year 539 B.C., when Cyrus, the Persian king, devised a brilliant plan. It actually wasn't him, it was one of his soldiers who came up with a plan of how to conquer this city. What they decided to do was they diverted the river Euphrates. They built a canal just uh, above it and it lowered the water level that allowed the troops to go in in knee-deep water into the city And they chose to do it on a night. This invasion occurred on a night of a great festival in the city. So everyone in the city was distracted with their their drinking and their dancing and their partying and their celebrating. And they had no idea that right at that very moment, their downfall was coming as, as the invasion occurred. And in a single night, the greatest city ever known on the planet at that time, fell. And its downfall was surprising. And it was swift. And it was complete. As we come to the book of Revelation, chapter 18 this morning, we are going to find a very similar picture. You have to even wonder if in the back of John's mind, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was this very collapse of the city of Babylon as he talks about the collapse of the world system known as Babylon. In Revelation chapter 17 through 19, we're in the fifth cycle here of these repeating visions of seeing the end of the world and how Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is going to come back and bring justice on the world and to deliver his people unto the land where there will be no more crying or tears or pain. And we have come here in chapter 18 where we are, we are going to see Babylon, not the city, but the system, the world system, and all of its treasures and pleasures and oppression of God and resistance to God. And we're going to see that just as that great city fell, so will the system of this world that has ensnared so many fall. Follow along with me, Revelation chapter 18. 
After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. All nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out from her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Verse 6, Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. Repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day. Death mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her, and the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour... Your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn. They mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold and silver and jewels and pearls and fine linen. Purple cloth and silk and scarlet cloth. All kinds of scented wood. All kinds of articles of ivory. All kinds of articles of costly wood and bronze and iron and marble. Cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves. That is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. Oh, what city was like the great city! And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying aloud, Alas, alas, for the great city 
where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour, she has been laid waste. Verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpets will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and all who have been slain on the earth. The sobering portion of Scripture. As we consider it this morning, there's really one main idea that I think hangs over the entire section. And it is this. Flee to Jesus because judgment is coming. Flee to Jesus because judgment is coming. Flee to Jesus because judgment is coming. As we look at this text, we're going to consider six descriptions of this coming judgment. And one of the things that's important as we study through this section, as we have all the way through the book of Revelation, is to ask that all-important question, where is that in the Old Testament? This text, as has been the whole book, is filled with allusions to the prophets and the law. Particularly in the background, we have Isaiah 21, 9, with the fall of Babylon. Fallen, fallen is she. Spoken of in the past tense because it's so certain that it will occur. Genesis 19 is in view with the, the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah heaping up to the very nose of God before he judges it and smoke rises up to the heavens. And in Ezekiel 26 through 28, with the destruction of Tyre and Sidon and all of its wealth, much of which is echoed in these, these chapters. We saw there in verse 1 that an angel appears to John like a, a flare descending into darkness. It, it lights up the earth and it, and it relays a, a vision of the collapse of Babylon. Now again, Babylon here, there, there was a city of Babylon and there was a civilization of Babylon as we talked about last time. We were in chapter 17, but, but this morning we're speaking here of Babylon, the sinful, anti-God world system. It's everything that fills our world, marked by idolatry and immorality. It's present in every age. It's infiltrated every portion of government. Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, and everybody else. 
It's infiltrated commerce and culture, entertainment, and its form changes throughout history as world powers rise and fall and trends come and go, but in its essence, it is always anti-God. It's always the distracting away from eternal things. As we've said before, this is why when you're watching a TV show and the commercial break comes, it never says, and I want a friendly reminder from on high that judgment is coming. You never hear that because everything is designed to sow you to what is fleeting. And this vision serves as a warning. Do not become ensnared in the sticky pleasures and treasures and power that this world system offers because it opposes God and God will oppose it. So six marks of this judgment. The first thing to notice here is the judgment is surprising. The judgment is surprising. Just as the fall of the ancient city of Babylon was shocking and nobody thought it could happen, thought they were invincible, how much more stable and secure does the world system appear to be? Yet God says the great city, the world system of Babylon will fall. Verse 1, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Verse 10, you great city, you mighty city. Verse 18, what city was like the great city? Six times in this chapter, the city is referred to as great. It appears unstoppable. And even in its own pride as it's ruled by Satan, it supposes that it's too secure to be shaken. Look at verse 7. She glorified herself in her heart. She says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow. And mourning I shall never see. The world system thinks that it cannot be taken down. Friends, beware of believing that the world system is secure. As I was studying this text this week, I couldn't get out of my mind the image of the Titanic. You remember in 1912, it was built with the most advanced craftsmanship of its day. And before its one and only voyage, Philip Franklin, the VP of the company who designed it, said these words that have lived on forever. There is no danger that Titanic will sink. The boat is unsinkable. Well, we all know that for 118 years, it has rested 2.5 million, or 2.5 miles down at the bottom of the sea off the coast of Nova Scotia. Nobody thought it could go down. How much more countries and civilizations, how many cities, great cities, and countries, great countries, and civilizations, great civilizations, have boasted in the same way? Yet now, there's museums just across the river filled with their relics, and they can be visited only in history books. They are testimony after testimony after testimony of what will be true of the greater Babylon. The system, which seems so secure and immovable, will be invaded by God Almighty from heaven, and He will bring a surprising, inescapable judgment. The judgment will be surprising. The second thing to notice here is that the judgment will be swift. 
The judgment will be swift. One thing that made the the fall of the ancient Babylon city so stunning was how quickly it happened in a single night. Well, the same will be true when Jesus comes back and wrecks shop on this world. That psalm that we, or Isaiah 52 that we opened with, it talked about God flexing his arm before the nations. In an instant when God does that, the world will fall. Verse 8, her plagues will come in a single day. Verse 10, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Verse 19, in a single hour she has been laid waste. Beware of believing that the world system is permanent. I don't know about you, but when I go walking on the hill over, just over the river in D.C. and look at the monuments and the buildings, they seem so permanent. They seem like they've just been there and that they'll always be there. But the scriptures want us to know that our civilization and every civilization is as secure as bubbles floating through a field of briars. Beautiful for a moment, but in an instant, gone. Our lives are this way. I mean, think about it. How frail. One, one, one blood vessel in the wrong place pops. One moment of undistracted driving. Our lives. I mean, even look at what's happened the past couple days. In a single moment, our whole country seems to be rattled. When Jesus returns, the sinful alliance of humanity will crumble. Later on, when we get to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 9, you're going to see the greatest army that's ever, ever assembled against God. And it says in one verse, they rallied together and then fire comes from heaven and they're consumed. The greatest rallying against God that's ever occurred in the last a half a verse. The judgment that is coming upon the world will be swift. The third thing to notice here is that the judgment will be sorrowful. The judgment will be sorrowful. As the world's kingdom crumbles, weeping will fill the air. In verses 9 through 18, we notice three groups. There's kings, there's merchants, and there's mariners. And they're all weeping. And they're weeping because the world that they love and all the pleasures and treasures it gives them are being taken away. They can't have their sin anymore. And it breaks their heart. Verse 9, the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Verse 11, merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Verse 17, all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and they wept and they mourned, crying out, alas, alas, for the great city were all who had ships and grew rich by her wealth. As judgment falls down, crying rises up. 
But why the world weeps is so important to see here because it reveals what they truly love. They're not weeping humbly because they've seen that their sin has offended the God who made them and who sustained them all of their lives. They're not weeping because they realize that they've misused all of his so many blessings for as long as they lived. They're not weeping because they used and abused and manipulated one another to pad their pockets. Rather, the world weeps because they can't enjoy their sin any longer. We can't get rich any longer. I mean, even think about what has been revealed in our hearts with the way that America has shut down through, through COVID. Regardless of what you think about shutdowns, I think what's being exposed in us is where we run to for refuge, to shows and to grumbling and complaining because we don't have our, our comforts. We love our comforts and we love our entertainment and we love economic you know, f- flourishing and, and all of these things. And again, there's a place to enjoy the good things of the world, but I think what's revealed in us in these days is how much we love it. They're weeping because nobody buys their cargo anymore. All of these things that are, are listed there in verses 12 through 14, all of the, the, the gold and the silver and the bronze and the iron and the cinnamon and the frankincense and the wine and the, all of this, and sheep and horses and, uh, horses and, and, and chariots and, 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 and slaves. Come back to that in a moment, but notice verse 14. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone out from you and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you never to be found again. The world is here brokenhearted because what they delighted in is destroyed. Notice here the affections. Do you see them? Their soul longed for it. It's what we love, desire, food, Fashion, power, prestige, control, comfort, pleasures, treasures. Do not be deceived by what seems so good in the moment. The pleasures of sin only last for a season, but they end in sorrow. They aren't lasting pleasures. They're fleeting ones. I mean, think about sin. In the moment, it satisfies, but then what do you need? You need need one more. How, How much satisfies us? One more dollar? Just one more dollar. Just one more dollar. Just one more click on the internet. Just one more thrill. Just one more. The next relationship will do it. Just one more show, and then I'll be able to relax. Just one more glass of wine. Just one more step up the career ladder. And again, there's, you've got to understand what sin does. It takes the many, many good things that God has given for us to enjoy and to respond to Him in thankfulness, and we make it all about us, void of Him. We want the blessings without the blesser. That's called idolatry. They love their idolatry. You see, God created our souls to be satisfied in Him, and every sweet thing that we enjoy in this life is intended to point us to Him in worship. But the world is designed to cater to sinful desires void of God. The judgment will be sorrowful. 
Number four, the judgment will be correct. The judgment will be correct. It will be right. It will be true. It will be just. On the day when Christ returns and renders judgment, one thing will be crystal clear for all to see. The judgment given is the judgment deserved. The judgment that will be given will be the judgment that is deserved. Look again, verse 5. Her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Again, this, this stunning picture of what is happening right now all across the world and has been happening all throughout human history. People are stacking up their sins before the eyes of God. This is the, the image that we must ask, well, where do we see that in the Old Testament? I mean, Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, making this tower up to very heaven to exalt themselves before the face of God. The same word, uh, wording is used in Jeremiah 51.9. The judgment has reached up to heaven. The, the mounting of our sins one upon another is, is here. It's metaphorical. It's like he's saying there's, there's a Mount Everest of evil and God has seen it all. He's seen all of our immoralities. He's heard all of our blasphemies. He's witnessed every bit of oppression. He knows about every deleted message, every shredded document, every hidden lie. He knows about all of the resistance to his continual mercies toward us. Every rejection of his call to turn and to come unto him and receive the goodness of a life with a heavenly father who loves you and knows you and created you to enjoy him, yet continually we push away. Even the persecution of his people, verse 24, it says, In her, Babylon, was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. We have to remember right now, every time we breathe, we suck in mercy. Right now, God is not being fair to the world. He's being merciful to the world. He's not giving us what we deserved. God says there is a day when he will be fair and just. He will show his justice. Babylon has multiplied her sins and God will now multiply his judgments against it. Verse 6, she will be repaid double for her deeds, a double portion for her sins. Now you might say, that doesn't sound like the punishment fits the crime. Why is she getting double? It's, a, it's an Old Testament idiom. It's a, it's a way of saying fullness. What they're saying here is, it's complete. As they filled up their cup, God's going to match it. God has a matching fund, if you will, for judgment. They fill up their cup, he says, I'll match that with appropriate justice. There is full appropriate justice. No mistrials, no favoritism in the court of God. Now, I want to be really clear about something here. There is, there is absolutely nothing unchristian about longing for justice. This is why we ought long for justice. Yes, as believers, we want to see people turn from their sins and believe upon Christ and be delivered, but at the same time, we want justice. And, and this is, all humanity wants justice. We want it in our own way, in our own, 
our own mind of what we think justice is, but, but we can't escape the fact that we're made in his image. And because God is good, he will do what is good, which is to punish evil, all evil. Which this should cause us to take both comfort and caution. It should cause us to take comfort. If you are in Christ, God's justice is good news. Because God sees everything. He sees everything that you have ever endured, every injustice you have ever been through. The books in heaven are filled. Every action, every motive. God God does not allow his people to bring private vengeance. But he assures us that he will bring about public, perfect vengeance at the right time. And in that We can take comfort and we can say and agree with the scriptures, vengeance is the Lord, we will repay and not return evil for evil. This is what marks God's people. So we can take comfort knowing that God will make all wrongs right. But we must also take caution. God's judgment will come against everyone. Doesn't matter if you're a Buddhist or a Baptist. Doesn't matter if you're an atheist or an Anglican. Doesn't matter if you're rich or old, young or poor, dark skin, light skin. Doesn't matter. All people will stand before God. And what we have to understand is that God's standard of judgment is not to compare us to one another to see and congratulate ourselves that we're better than this person or that person. But rather, all people in the end will be compared to God in His perfect holiness. This is why Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of His glory. This is why all people, all people are destined for judgment. This is also where good news comes in. Glorious news. Good news of peace. See, the good news is that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. God loves to save people. He loves to give mercy. This is why he sent his son Jesus. This is why Jesus came and lived a perfect, sinless life. Never disobeying the Father. Never misusing good gifts never doing evil himself, always obeying perfectly in every way, and then willingly and joyfully, because of what he knew laid before, he went to the cross and despised the shame of taking upon himself all of the sins of every person who will ever turn from their sin and trust, upon, trust in him. This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus on the cross took the justice that we deserve He received payment for our sins, paid in full. That's why he could say, it is finished. That is good news. And then he went into the grave and he suffered the death that we deserved. But then three days later, he did what nobody else does. When they go into the grave, he he rose from the dead, victorious over sin, Satan, and death. And now he comes with good news of great joy. That no matter where you've been or what you've done, no matter how much you deserve judgment or think you don't, that in 
Christ, you can be forgiven of your sins if you will but turn from your sin and believe upon him. He will save you from the judgment that is to come. This is why he says, come out, my people. Come out. Believe upon Jesus. I wasn't quite sure where to say it, but I I thought this might be a good place. Since in our, our day, so often the idea of living in America and being a Christian can be confused and conflated. I just want to say to us that we ought to take we all take no comfort that we live in America. America, I just want to be clear, is, is not a Christian nation. It's part of Babylon. Just like every other nation that has ever existed. It doesn't mean that we haven't known great blessing from God in many ways doesn't mean that we haven't had great freedom for the gospel here and that is a stewardship the United States of America is a country that just like every other country loves luxury and power and pleasure and wealth and trading of goods even our history is stained with trading not just goods but verse 13 slaves that is human souls In a day and age where it is so clear about the continual disparity about honoring people in God's image, we must not take comfort that we live in this land. Just because we have had great freedoms for the gospel does not mean that in any way, shape, or form we will be exempt from judgment. People often ask, where is America in the book of Revelation? She is here in Babylon, just like every other nation being judged for her sins. Well, where is the church then? Well, in every other nation, being called out from her to receive the grace and the mercy of Jesus. May we flee unto Jesus because judgment is coming and it will be correct. Fifthly, the judgment be complete. The judgment will be complete. There is no place that escapes the judgment of God. It is complete. Look again at verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in her no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be found in you no more. Do you notice here how the angel on behalf of God is speaking directly to Babylon? This personification of rebellion is hearing it personally. God is coming and the judgment will be complete. And God uses, he gives both John and us this this graphic image here that's taken from Jeremiah chapter 51, 63 through 64 of Babylon's judgment being like taking a great millstone that was used to, these millstones were used to to crush grain or were pulled by animals. They weighed some 3,000 pounds. The picture here is that this angel lifts up this 
this millstone and, and throws it into the sea. And it sinks to the bottom, never to be seen again. Much like that Titanic image. Sunken, silenced, gone forever. All the joys that once filled the eyes and the ears and the hearts of people are no more. And again, many of these things that are listed right here are not sinful in and of themselves. The problem is that they've been enjoyed atheistically. They've been enjoyed as if there's no God who gave it all. As if there's not a God who makes music. As if there's not a God who, who designed marriage to be a reflection of the gospel. As if there's not a God who, who, who gives work as, as a good gift. Who gives resources to be used rightly. Six times, no more, no more, no more, no more, no more, no more. The judgment is complete. It is final. Sounds of music, silenced. Creative ingenuity is extinguished. The stock market hits zero. The hope of all light is snuffed out. Laughter and celebration of weddings ceased. These are all images, again, from the Old Testament, drawn from Jeremiah 25 and Ezekiel 26, describing the finality of the judgment that is to come. Even here, there's another image in the Scripture of, of a millstone being thrown into the water that brings great encouragement. You see, the Gospel tells us that God does the exact opposite with our sins. In this picture, sinful Babylon and all who are a part of it are thrown down into the abyss of judgment. <laughs> Micah chapter 7, verse 19, hear this. It says, God will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Sins go into the bottom of the sea of judgment. And either we will go with it because we have latched on to it because we love it, or the mercy that is found in God is that if we will turn from our sin and cling to Christ by faith, sin goes to the bottom and it is forgotten forevermore. And then we stand before God justified because of the grace of Christ with no evidence against us. Where is the evidence? It's nailed to the cross and then cast to the bottom of the sea of the abyss. Gone forever. That's the good news of the gospel. So as striking as the judgment is that is coming, so striking is the mercy that is available for anyone who will come out from Babylon. So come out. Come out even today and know the presence of a Savior who meets you in the midst of all of your trials and walks with you and takes you to that land where there will be no more crying or sin or pain. Brings us to our sixth and final observation here. That the judgment is celebrated. The judgment uh, is and will be celebrated. While there will be an eternity of sorrow for those who have opposed God and resisted mercy, there will be much joy for those who sees God's justice come to pass and have found refuge in Christ. Verse 20, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Do you hear this? If you are in Christ, we can boast and say, if God is for us, who can be against us? No matter what bit of oppression has come, God says, 
Come, take refuge in me, my people, and I will now stand on your behalf and bring justice. And this is a reason to be celebrated. And we'll get more on this later in the chapters of Revelation, but if you feel uncomfortable with the thought of rejoicing while countless others are are judged, it, it makes sense. And this is where we must plead and ask God to help us to trust him. Because I can assure you, friends, that when when we see God for who he is, and we see sin for what it truly is, and we recognize the depths from which Christ has delivered his people, we will praise him forever for his justice, because it will be proven to be good. Heaven knows this. Look at chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. God's justice is good, and for eternity we will celebrate it. Plead that God would help us to feel about hell and judgment the way that he feels about it. He does not delight in the death of the wicked. That is why he gave his son. But God will be honored and deserves to be honored. And when we see him, we will understand in full and rejoice with him forevermore. Those are the six observations about the judgment that will come. This is a sobering text. And it has one very clear application. Certainly there are many other applications, but there is one application that is given clearly in the text. It is to flee to Jesus because judgment is coming. Flee to Jesus because judgment is coming. Look again at verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people. Come out, he says, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. So this one bit of application is directed toward two groups of people who are here this morning. The first is if you know yourself to not be a Christian. I'm not talking about if you vote a certain way. I'm not talking about whether you've you know, done some religious acts. I'm talking about if you know yourself to be someone who has not repented of your sins and turned to Christ and pleaded for forgiveness and been forgiven by His mercy. I want to... I want to plead with you to hear this call to come out from sin and to come unto Jesus. Do not be deceived by the fleeting pleasures and treasures of this world. Do not forsake Jesus to enjoy what the world would give you. Jesus would say this to you. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Your soul is worth more than all of the wealth and the power, and the pleasure, and the treasure added up from all time. Yet so many will lose their soul by loving the world. 
you do not know yourself to be a Christian, I plead with you. If you sense God calling to you, come out, come out. Do not, do not harden your heart against him. But even right where you are, you can cry out and say, God, would you forgive me? You can do that in your heart. Say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. Thank you that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. If that is true and you believe that, it's evidence that God is working in your life and desires to rescue you. Any of us afterwards would love to talk to you about that more. There's also an application here for the Christian. You've got to remember this letter is written to the seven churches and to all the churches who are hearing this letter forevermore. The application is the same. Come out from the world. This is not a call to be a separatist who won't speak to people who, who don't believe what you believe. This is far from it. We are to be in the world as salt and light, Jesus says, but to not be of the world. And one of the great temptations of our age for the church is to try to be as cool and culturally with it as possible so that we can do whatever we can to distance ourselves from whoever those Christians are in our mind. We want to not be those guys who are kind of out of touch with reality or just judgmental or, you know, fire and brimstone kind of guys. We don't want to be in irrelevant It's a great temptation. I want you to, to know that Satan schemes in ways to try to get us to make peace with the world in whatever sinful world, as it were, in whatever ways we can. Beware. Come out from her. Just because we come to Christ doesn't mean we can't be tempted by the sins we used to love. We are. And we will continue to be in many ways until we see his face and sin is no more. We must beware of what the world offers what is flashy and fashionable and trendy in appearances and popularity. I encourage you today to speak with those you came with or in your community groups later, talking about pleading with one another, pleading with God to show in what ways do I love the world. He calls us to be holy as He is holy, which is not a call away from happiness. It is a call to the truest joy, to know Him, to know Him who is more precious than silver or gold or anything else that this world could ever offer. This is why discipleship, discipling one another is so essential. We want to help each other think about what it means to, to make money but not trust in it. To, to know how to enjoy relationships in ways that God has designed that if we have a measure of wealth, that, that God gives it to us to, to use for the good of, of others. To use positions of authority as, in ways that are good for others. That's what it means to be Christian. So we are people who are united to Christ and we seek to, to make his life known. We want to help each other to do that, which is include fleeing from temptation that abounds. To conclude with a, a story that I hope as sobering as it is for me, echoes this call to come out from her. On August 24th, the year 79 AD, right around noon, Mount Vesuvius in Naples in Italy erupted with one of the most catastrophic volcanic eruptions in history. There was a city named Pompeii 
There's about 11,000 people who was advanced in agriculture and prosperity and, and perversion that was located at the bottom of this volcano. And it erupted so quickly that people had a hard time fleeing and it wasn't discovered until 1738 when it was excavated and found under 13 feet, 10 to 13 feet, depending on the place of ash, there was this entire city entombed. This city that was known for pleasure and treasure that in an instant was covered. And one of the sobering discoverings that they found there was of a lady. She was found at the what appeared to be the end of a dock in the seashore. And in her arms was cradled gold and silver and jewels. What appears to have happened was that as, as the volcano erupted, that she ran back to her house and grabbed as much as she could of what she had and tried to hold on to it and make a run for the ships that were fleeing out to sea, but she didn't make it. That picture has always stuck with me as, as a sobering warning to all of us to come out, to not try to cling to what the world offers, to try to dabble in our sin and just see how much we can get before we fall in. But this word from God is a word of mercy to flee unto Jesus. He is better than anything you could ever hold to in this life. He is worth it. Come unto him, cling to him, flee to him, because indeed, judgment is coming. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. God, texts like this are weighty and sobering and wonderful, yet hard, hard for me to preach. Yet God, we need to hear this, and we thank you that you have given it to us. And I pray for each person who is here today that you would meet them where they are and show them how they are tempted toward and ensnared in the temptations of this world. And might you give grace upon grace in Christ to help them to flee. Oh, Father, would you make us a people who love you more than anything that this world could ever offer. And God, might you help us to turn from our sin and to flee unto Jesus continually until that day when he returns and takes us to a land where there will be no more crying or tears or pain or injustice or sin done by us or done to us. Oh, come soon, Lord Jesus. But until you do, would you help us to trust you? We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.